All right, if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and find Acts chapter 11. We're gonna wrap up the second part of our series in Acts today. Then we're gonna take a break for heroin and then we'll dive back into Acts and finish it up. Today, we're gonna be talking about a really beautiful moment in the history of the church, a really missional moment in the history of the church. And it's really helpful because sometimes we begin to think that the church is something disconnected from God's mission. Right? The church is like a club or the church is a building or the church is a social gathering. And, and what Acts reminds us of again and again is that the church of Jesus is central to the mission of Jesus. The church exists for the mission of God, to take the good news of God's grace to all the nations and to grow people up to look more like Jesus. And what happens in Acts chapter 11 is we're introduced to this really fantastic church that was one of the most powerful missional churches in the ancient world. And in fact, I'll just sort of let the cat out of the bag. This is my favorite church in history. Um, This is the church that's formed my view of the church more than any other church in the New Testament or throughout the last 2,000 years. And that church is the church at Antioch. And what happens in the church at Antioch is that they mobilize themselves for mission They're so caught up with the grace of God. They're so enamored and enraptured by the power and splendor of Jesus that what happens is this church at Antioch becomes this beautiful missional movement throughout this city known as Antioch. And and the missional movement of the church at Antioch doesn't even stop with Antioch. Actually, they become the sending base for the first three missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. And this is one of those churches, like there's churches that have really short runs in history and they exist for maybe a generation. And then because of either changing culture or sin in the church, Jesus pulls his hands off of them. And then there's a few churches throughout history that have a run that lasts 200 years, 300 years, or even longer. And Antioch is just one of these churches where Jesus keeps his hand on it for a really long time and they have a really beautiful and rich history. And so today what we're going to do is basically, as a church, we're going to humble ourselves to learn from a really ancient church. And we're going to ask Jesus to do the things in our city and in our church that he did in Antioch 2,000 years ago, because it's the same God, it's the same gospel, it's the same truth, it's the same Holy Spirit, it's the same mission, and we get invited into participating in the mission of God just like the church at Antioch got to participate. And I'll just say, like, getting to be a part of the mission of God is better than church just being something we do because we're in the Midwest, It's more compelling than just showing up because that's what we do in Oklahoma or because you've got little kids and you're terrified they're going to grow up to be sociopaths so you want some support. Like actually seeing the church as as the tip of the spear that extends God's gracious, loving, incredible global mission to redeem and reconcile people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, that makes what we're doing right now compelling. It makes it worth your time. It makes it worth your energy. It's better than just a social club, right? Like if all this is is just a social club, this is a real big waste of time. Like if this is just our hobby because we're Oklahomans, can we just call it quits and go in together on a lake house and we'll just rotate it around and share it and not do this together? But if this is really an invitation from the living God to meet with Jesus through the person of the Holy Spirit, to be changed in community, and then to actually have our lives 
wrapped into God's mission where your life doesn't have to be wasted on a kingdom of self, but you get to be used by God in your job and in your neighborhood in this point in history, that's something that's worth giving your energy and your passion to. So take your Bible. I wanna show you five things about the church at Antioch. And the first thing I wanna show you is that the church in Antioch practiced what we'll just call gospel innovation. This was a church that had gospel innovation at the core of who they were. Let me read to you from Acts 11, starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the the martyrdom of Stephen and how the persecution of the early church got intensified after he was murdered and Christians from all over Jerusalem, they got thrown out into the surrounding regions. And here's what it says. They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, but here's what's happening. They were speaking the word to no one except Jews. Last week, Andrew Burkhart, one of our teaching pastors, he talked about the fact that the early church kind of left part of the Great Commission out. Jesus said that you're gonna be my witnesses to Jerusalem. That was ground zero for the Jesus movement and predominantly Jewish. Judea, that's the surrounding area. Samaria and the ends of the earth. And what's happening right now is these Christians who were ethnically and culturally Jewish, they're getting sprinkled out all over these different regions and cities, but they're only speaking to people of like culture. They're only talking to fellow Jews about the gospel of Jesus. And something's going to happen in verse 20 that breaks down those cultural barriers that takes the mission of God to other people. Look what happens. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Uh, That word Hellenist means they were not necessarily ethnically Greek, but they were culturally Greek. They, They were formed by the traditions of Greece and they spoke Greek. And here's what happens. As they're speaking to these Hellenists, they preach to them the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So here we have in the city of Antioch, a massive city, a culturally diverse city, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. We have the first real missional traction with huge numbers of Gentiles. Hellenists are meeting Jesus like crazy. And the reason they're meeting Jesus like crazy is because a few unnamed people were willing to practice healthy, biblically faithful gospel innovation by going to people that didn't know Jesus and sharing the gospel. Now, to understand this, I want to unpack real fast what gospel innovation is not. Okay, when I say gospel innovation, we're not talking about changing the message of the gospel. So here's what was happening in the city of Antioch. Um, Antioch, as the third largest city of the empire, as a city that was on a major trade route between sort of Europe and Asia, this major city had all kinds of different cultures. There were eight different pagan temples in the city of Antioch, right? There were Jewish people and Roman people, and there were all kinds of different tribal people that lived in this city. And so this city was this melting pot of culture. It had major Roman culture. It had major Greek culture. And then it had major influences from other pagan cultures throughout the land. And what we mean by gospel innovation is not that the early church sort of said, okay, 
what are the things about, it, about Jesus that are going to offend all the people in this city? And let's change those things and tweak those things or cover those things or adapt those things to fit in and make the gospel relevant. That's not what they did. In fact, they could have done it if they wanted to. Let, let me explain it like this. Um, they could have changed the message of the gospel to appease Romans by just saying, hey, all that stuff about Jesus as king that sort of competes with Caesar, that's really controversial, that might get us killed, we'll just delete that part and we'll just talk about the cross. And when talking to Greeks, they could have said all that stuff about God becoming flesh that was super offensive to Greek people, we'll just leave that stuff out and that stuff about a bloody cross being the wisdom of God and how God reconciled people to himself. Greeks don't like that part of the message. Let's just tweak that and we'll talk about Jesus's teachings. Right? Or they could have said, all these pagans who worship their gods and deities oftentimes with sexual sin, so these pagans would have temples and basically they would sleep with prostitutes and they would practice like orgies in their religious rites. Um, these pagans are not gonna like the message that we actually have to obey Jesus and surrender our sexuality. So let's just leave that stuff out. Like they could have adapted the gospel to meet the culture, but instead of doing that, what do they do? They preached Jesus. And when it says that they preach Jesus, what that means is they preach the totality of the good news of Jesus. They talked about his life. They talked about his death. They talked about his resurrection. They talked about trusting him with our lives and what faith is and what grace is. And here's what happens as they're faithful to the historic, unalterable message of the gospel. The gospel does what it does when it's preached. It actually drives into hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and calls people out of all of these different backgrounds to trust Jesus. We, we live in this weird moment where kind of like Antioch, we're in this pluralistic age and there's all kinds of beliefs and ideas. And can we just admit like there's tons of stuff about the gospel that is super offensive, Jesus said things that were offensive. He did things that were offensive. And it's easy to look at our city and say, hey man, like I, I got tons of atheist friends. How do I adapt the gospel to meet them? Or I've got tons of friends from other faiths. How do I adapt the gospel to meet them? Or I've got friends that were sort of burned by religion. How do I change the gospel to meet them? And here's what I wanna say. Like you don't have to make the gospel relevant. It already is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it's the only hope for all the people in our city. And so gospel innovation, it's not watering down the good news of Jesus. What's fascinating is if you look back on the last 200 years of Western Christianity, coming out of the enlightenment, there was this idea that intellectual people are not gonna believe the miracles of the Bible. So they started stripping out huge chunks of scripture, like the resurrection, like the virgin birth, and what they thought was, if we can just sort of save Christianity from the miraculous, we'll be relevant to the culture and the age that we're in. Well, that thinking has continued. And here's what's fascinating. Every church and denomination that has adapted the gospel to fit the culture, far from becoming more effective and relevant, they shrink, decline, die, and disappear. And there's a reason for that gospel is the good news of Jesus. And if you tweak it, you're missing out. You're missing out on God's terms of peace to all people on planet earth. So we don't want to think that gospel innovation is changing the content of the gospel. In addition to that, gospel innovation, it's not trying to come up with something novel or cool, right? Antioch was a major entertainment center. 
There were Olympic-style games that happened there. It was a hotbed for the theater. It was a city of food and drink. And it would have been easy for these early Christians to think, okay, um, we've got to be relevant to this city, so how can we spice up the gospel to make it entertaining and fun so that people will show up? And they didn't do that. They preached Jesus. We we live in this weird moment where, and, and we've actually done a lot of silly things to try to innovate. Like, we live in this weird moment where we start to think that to bring the gospel to an American culture where we've bought into the idea that Americans' attention span is like 2.5 minutes and and that everything that we do is about pop culture, we've sort of, as Christians and churches, started to think that relevance is becoming novel. So you can have pastors like rappelling down to the stage and explosions going off and they're talking about the Holy Spirit and releasing live doves into the crowd and dudes on motorcycles and more lasers than Star Wars. And we just like keep trying to innovate and go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we try to out entertain and out sexy the world. And we just become more and more ridiculous. Like, here's the deal. We don't have to make the gospel relevant. We don't have to make the gospel entertaining. What we do is have to explain the gospel in a way that different cultures can understand it. Gospel innovation for these people was not tweaking the message or coming up with something novel, trite, and cute. Here's what it was. It was going to people that didn't know Jesus and telling them about Jesus in language that they could understand and in places where they gathered. So they went to the people that were far from Jesus. They spoke the language that those people spoke. They built friendships with them and they actually engaged them where they gathered. The Hellenists, they had a different culture. They had a different language. They had different questions. They had different places of gathering. And what happens is these early Christians are like, you know what? It's probably gonna make some Christians mad, but let's go to where they are and let's speak their language and tell them the best news in the universe that God the creator is coming after those that have rejected him and abandoned him through Jesus. We wanna do this as a church. Like we wanna be a church that does gospel innovation. What does that mean for us? Well, it means something for us together and individual. For, for us together, it means that our calling to plant churches is not a one-size-fit-all cultural adaptation. Like, here's what I mean. Uh, Sujith, one of our elders, is, is going to be planting a church, God willing, in the next couple of years in a city in South India known as Cochin. And it's a city of about 3 million people, super diverse. It's a big city. It's a growing city. Um, for Sujith to practice gospel innovation does not mean that he has to change the gospel to make it more palatable to Hindus or to Muslims or to uh, post-Christian intellectuals in his city. What it means is he actually has to figure out what are the questions that those people are asking that only Jesus can answer And he has to engage them in the places that they go. And he has to speak to them in ways that they can understand. And he has to love them enough to be willing to leave home base and go. It'll be different than when we plant a church in Lawton, Oklahoma, which will be different than when we plant a church in Guthrie, Oklahoma, which will feel different than when we plant a church in, uh, than when we partner this year and plant a church with our Cornerstone buddies in Liverpool and start a new work there. It'll be different, but it won't be different in the message It won't be different in the content. It'll be different in the language and in the engagement of culture. Now, what this means for us individually is that gospel innovation is simply being willing to not live in a Christian bubble for the rest of your life. 
right? Gospel innovation is being willing to recognize that there are people in your neighborhood, people on your campus, people that you work with that are asking questions about reality and meaning and pain and suffering and eternity. And it's your job as a Christian to not insulate yourself just with Christians and not be aware of the city that we live in. It's your job to go where people are, to listen to the questions that they have, and to speak to them in a way that they can understand about how Jesus rescued you. Gospel innovation is being willing to go and learn and speak and engage and point people back to the grace of God in Christ. Second thing about this church that's beautiful, they practice healthy gospel innovation. In addition to that, we see risk-taking and tons of fruit. So they would take a risk and fruit would be brought about by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also and preached the Lord Jesus. Now, here's what they were risking. Think about this. These are guys that just got persecuted in their own hometown. They've been scattered out and their new hometown is the city of Antioch. And now all of a sudden, they're risking the very same persecution that brought them to Antioch as a refugee. They're risking the very same persecution when they get to their new city. In addition to that, these guys are risking being kicked out of the Jerusalem church. There was a group of people known as the Judaizers or the circumcision party that was super, they were super influential in the early church. And think about it, um, they didn't really want the gospel to go to the Gentiles, and they certainly didn't want Gentiles to be received into the church without becoming culturally Jewish. And now all of a sudden, these guys are sharing the gospel with all these Hellenists, and they're risking the Jewish feel and vibe of the church. Now, do you think that that might have hacked off some people in Jerusalem? I guarantee you, I guarantee you that there were Christians telling rumors about them and criticizing them and being against them. They were risking much, but here's what we see that Jesus does. Look at verse 21. They're risking their reputation. They're risking their lives. They're risking the comfort of the church. But verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Like, I'll just say this. There has never been a moment in the history of God's mission where fruitfulness abounded in conversions and lives transformed without a massive amount of risk. What happens in their risk-taking is they step out in faith and they're willing to hold their hands, their lives open to Jesus. And what Jesus does is he honors it. He moves and he blesses them. And what I would say to us is that any risk that you take just because you're bored is not necessarily a gospel risk. But any risk that you take because Jesus commanded you to take the risk is a wise gospel risk. When Jesus tells you to do something and you obey and you take the chance and you risk the relationship or you risk your reputation or you risk your finances, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything on the other side of that risk is going to be easy or smooth. In fact, sometimes it means death for certain people throughout the history of the church. But the guarantee is if what's driving your risk is obedience to the commands of Jesus, the risk is infinitely worth it and it actually will produce more joy than disobedient safety. In fact, disobedient safety is actually an oxymoron. The most dangerous place to be is in disobedience to the living God. The safest place to be is when you're actually submitting and surrendering to the will of Jesus, even if it's totally costly. 
So let, let me tell you a couple stories. We've got some cops in our church that really love Jesus and they love the people that they serve in the community. And I've had multiple police officers in our church tell me stories about arresting people and sharing the good news of Jesus with them in the back of their squad car. Now, I don't know what could happen if that gets around. I might've just got somebody fired, but I'm pretty sure that you're taking a huge chance as a cop to be present with the person that you just arrested and to actually give them the hope of Jesus in one of their darkest moments. We've got some teachers in our church that graduated from college and had open doors to go to any school that they wanted to teach at. And if Jesus calls you to a wealthy, influential school, wealthy, influential people need education too. That's not a bad thing. But we have some teachers in our church that since the calling of Jesus to urban poor areas, and they're actually willing to risk their future livelihood and their career to go teach in a classroom where they're completely outnumbered by a whole bunch of kids that are under-resourced and under-privileged because they really care about the gospel and being a presence of peace in a community. That's a gospel risk, right? When we take chances to love our hurting neighbors financially, to engage in mission, to open our mouths with a new friend and say, hey, I just want you to know this about me, that I'm a Christian and that means I love Jesus and that means I wanna follow him and I wanna know where you're at in your beliefs. Like when we do that, you're risking something But every time it's a commanded risk, it's a worthwhile risk. Now, I just want to say this. We want to be a church like the Antioch church that is not risk averse. We want to be willing to risk reputation. We want to be willing to risk finances in advancing the mission of Jesus. We want to be the kind of church that at the end of the day, we're holding everything with open hands. And as Jesus leads and directs us, we want to follow him where he sends us. I think back years ago when we planted Frontline Shawnee. And uh, if you were a part of our church way back then, like we were this tiny group of people meeting in Automobile Alley. Uh, We had one room that had about 200 seats and we had like four services. It was just bananas, crazy. The AC never worked at all during the summer. It was a really gritty, really hectic time. We did not know what we were doing. We were incredibly underfunded, and all of a sudden we felt like Jesus told us to plant a congregation in Shawnee, Oklahoma, that's over 30 miles away. Like, how do we do this? We don't know how to pay for it. We don't have enough leaders. We're barely leading what we have now, and now Jesus is calling us to multiply from a place of chaotic and crazy energy. Like, he wants us to send now. And as we prayed and sought the Lord, he confirmed, like, yes, I'm telling you to risk. When Jesus tells you to risk, it's worth taking the risk. In a few months, we're going to be talking to the singles of our church about dating and relationships. And one of the things I'm hearing again and again from the single men and women of our church that are trying to follow Jesus is like, they're really risking something by engaging in a relationship the way that Jesus calls them to. They're risking reputation. They're risking potentially being alone in a culture that doesn't understand the sexual ethos of following Jesus. But that risk is worth it if Jesus tells you to take it because he's the treasure. And as you walk with him in obedience, you get to enjoy more and more of him. So this church in Antioch, what's so beautiful about it? Well, first thing, they take, they're willing to to do gospel innovation to reach people that haven't been reached. Secondly, they're willing to take big risks so that there can be big fruit. The third thing that's beautiful, and this is really fun to talk about because it stresses people out in our church so much. The third thing that's really beautiful is that this was a church that loved the word of God and they loved the spirit of God. 
They loved the word and they loved the spirit. Let me show you what I mean. The word of God was central to the Antiochian church. Look at verse 22. The report of all these conversions comes to the ears of those in Jerusalem. What do they do? They send Barnabas to Antioch to see what's going on. Verse 23. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to do what? Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So here's what happens. He shows up. There's all these brand new Christians from all kinds of different pagan backgrounds. And they're trying to figure out how do I follow Jesus in a city that's so full of competing voices? And how do I follow Jesus when my whole circle of friends and family and coworkers don't know Jesus? And here's what he says to him. Hey, I want you to be faithful to the Lord. So respond to Jesus in obedience and maintain steadfast purpose. Know that your life is about the gospel. Now, how do you accomplish faithfulness to the Lord with steadfast purpose if you have no idea what God's like or what he wants, what his will is? Well, the answer is you can't. It's like, is this faithfulness to the Lord? Is this steadfast purpose? I have no idea because I don't know the heart of God and I don't know his will. So what do you do to respond to God in faithfulness when he saved you by grace? Well, look what Barnabas does. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So look at me, like, what do you do with a group of brand new Christians that don't know how to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose? Well, I got an idea. How about we get a decent Bible teacher by the name of Saul, right? He's a decent Bible teacher. I mean, he's gonna write the book of Romans. He, he's pretty smart, he's pretty sharp, and let's take all these brand new Christians and for a year, let's have this guy named Paul teach them about the truth and the beauty of the gospel through the Old Testament. That is breathtaking. They had a love for the word of God. Now, they didn't just have a love for the word of God, they also had a love for the Holy Spirit that wrote the word of God. Let me, let me show you this. Look at verse 27. Now, in those days, prophets, that's a word that's, awkward for a lot of you. Prophets, New Testament prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit. Okay, that sounds so spooky. He foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, let me show you one more. Look at verse 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. So here's what's happening in Antioch that's so rare. Like the Antiochian church is like a unicorn. It's just really hard to find a church like this. What's happening in Antioch is devotion to the truth of God's word, surrendering to the doctrine of God's word, delight in the truth of what God's revealed in the written scripture, and at the very same time, a passionate pursuit of God the Holy Spirit who teaches the word who wrote the word, who gifts people for ministry, who directs the life of the church, who empowers people for service, who speaks and leads and guides. And just in case you're really getting nervous, he doesn't ever violate the word that he wrote. He's not double-minded. Everything he says surrenders to his word. So in Antioch, this is such a weird deal. There were prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. Because usually prophets don't like teachers, 
It's like, oh man, we don't want to surrender to anything that the Bible says. We don't want to have prophecy tested. We just want to have super kooky bananas, three hour long worship sets. And we want to be able to do whatever the heck we want to do. And we certainly don't want to talk about things like sin. And we, we think, in fact, it's kind of unspiritual to learn doctrinal truths from Christianity. That's usually what happens. And then the teachers, they're usually like, man, these people that want to worship more expressively and talk about dreams and visions, they freak me out. They're weird. I don't want anything to do with any of the spooky stuff in the Bible. I just want to pretend like it's not there and redact it out of scripture and we'll ignore it. And what happens in this church is that the prophetic and the word, like the spirit of God who convicts us and leads us and guides us and forms us and shapes us and teaches us and the word of God that's the light to our feet, they're together in unison so that these people can remain in faithfulness and steadfast purpose to Jesus. So let me just say, I want to be the kind of church that for some of you, you're like, oh man, you just keep talking about the word. We keep opening the Bible and we keep testing prophetic stuff. That feels really crazy. Let's just do it. Let's just go for it and throw that stuff out and just be free without the Bible. I want those people to feel like, oh man, this is stressing me out because they keep wanting me to test my prophetic sense or my hunch or my vision or my word with the Bible. I want you to feel that. And I want our people that are really passionate about reading through Augustine's Confessions and you love studying Calvin's Institutes and systematic theologies. I I want you to be surrounded by people that are pushing you towards not just intellectual Christianity, but also the experiential reality of God, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. Because what happens when both those things are together is nobody's really comfortable, but everybody grows. Are you guys with me? So this was a church This was a church that practiced gospel innovation. This was a church that practiced obedient risk-taking. And this was a church that had spirit and word. Let me give you two more real fast. Uh, Yeah, fourthly, uh, this was a church that had a diverse and healthy leadership team. A diverse and healthy leadership team. Look at chapter 13, verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Um, let, Let me tell you what I mean by diverse and healthy. Four things. They were diverse in their numbers. Here's what we see is that the church in Antioch wasn't a triangle org chart with one pastor or bishop at the top and a bunch of hirelings. What we see in Antioch is team ministry where we have six different leaders named who are together shepherding and guiding the work of God in Antioch in submission to Jesus. And we think this is really biblical. What happens in the New Testament is when Paul goes to churches He trains and then appoints what the Bible calls elders in plural in every church. Now, that word elder is synonymous with the word pastor. So what we see in the New Testament is not one-man show leadership models. What we see in the New Testament are healthy teams where there's guys that are called and qualified and competent that serve as spiritual dads in a church, governing and shepherding and leading the people of God. And what we see in this church is that it's not just one dude. Can I just apply this to you? We want to have lots of leaders in our church. We want to train more elders in our church. We want more deacons and deaconesses in our church. But let me just apply this to you. You're never going to make an impact for the kingdom of God. 
You're never going to grow to be who God's called you to be in isolation. And what's happened in this moment in the West is that as Christianity becomes more consumeristic and more individualistic, our impact and our depth are lessened. If you want to follow Jesus and grow to look more like Jesus and make an impact in the world for the glory of Jesus, you're not going to do that by yourself. You need teams. You need friends. You need gospel community. You need people that you do life with. Like, here's what's crazy about our God. One God in three persons, that's relationship. And every model of ministry that's faithful in the New Testament reflects that relationship. Family reflects it. Marriage reflects it. Gospel community reflects it. Single men and women that love Jesus and our brothers and sisters reflect it. You can't follow Jesus by yourself. So they're diverse in numbers. Secondly, they're diverse in gifts. It wasn't just one kind of spiritual gift or one kind of passion with these leaders. They were prophets and teachers. So like, we don't want to have the kind of church where there's just one gifting that we value and that's the only kind of gifts that we show. We want to have tons of different gifts. We want to have a diversity of gifts. Thirdly, they were diverse in cultures. Let let me unpack this real fast. Barnabas was a Jewish man from the island of Cyprus and he just had the gift of encouragement like nobody you've ever met. In fact, his name Barnabas means son of encouragement. So if you're bummed out, if you're depressed, if you're stressed out and anxious, Barnabas is the guy that you want to have coffee with. He's the guy that's going to encourage you and love on you. He's going to have all those verses about who you are in Christ and he's going to hug you and he's going to cry with you. He's just this encouraging dude. Then we have Paul or Saul. Saul's really weird because he's a Jewish man from Tarsus but he's also a Roman citizen and he's a student of Greek culture. So he's just this weird like cultural mutt. He's this cultural mashup. And and I'm not saying he wasn't encouraging, but there's an angsty edge to Paul that comes out in scripture, right? Like he's not Barnabas. In fact, he actually wants to fire Barnabas's buddy, John Mark, because he felt like John Mark bailed on him during a missions trip. Barnabas is like, hey, let's give him a 10th chance. Let's just encourage him. Let's love him. And Paul is like, no, dude, let's fire him. So these guys are different. They're different culturally. They're different with their gifts. And then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger is Latin for black. This is, a, this is an African man. This is an African man that's different from these other Jewish cultures. And then we have Lucius of Cyrene, which is current day Libya in Africa. And then we have Menaean, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's just super weird. Um, but here's what this guy is. This is a dude that was probably born with a silver spoon in his hand. He was probably a foster brother of one of the Herods, and he was raised in the court. He got the best education, the fanciest clothes. He's a wealthy dude, a well-educated dude, and probably a really influential guy in the city of Antioch. Now, what do these guys have in common? Literally nothing except Jesus. These are not guys that would get together for a golf game. Like these are not dudes that are going to hang out, watch the game together. These are guys that have nothing in common but Jesus. And and yet Jesus is enough to make them brothers and friends. Please pray for us as a church. Like if you live in rural Oklahoma and it's totally homogenous racially and culturally, you might not need this diverse of a leadership team. But if you're trying to reach Antioch, the melting pot, You need this kind of leadership team 
And we as a church need this kind of leadership team. We need ethnic diversity among our leaders. We need cultural diversity. We need some people to understand the business leaders of our city and how they think so that they can reach them and serve them. And then we need some people that know what it's like to be raised on the streets, to have street gritty experience to reach people that are down and out. We need all of that. Why? Because we're in a city like Antioch with a ton of cultures. And then I'll just say this. These leaders were not just diverse culturally or with their gifts or with their numbers, but they were healthy. And this is the biggest thing. Look at what they do in Acts 13.2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Okay, here's what I mean. Um, These leaders were not perfect. There are no sinless leaders except for Jesus. But here's what we know from this verse. These were leaders that were devoted to Jesus more than their own kingdom. They're led by the Holy Spirit. They're dependent on grace and they're willing to obey when Jesus tells them what to do. We want to have this kind of leadership team that loves Jesus, that repents of sin, that loves the people of God, that say yes when Jesus commands us to go, that are willing to send our best and our brightest if Jesus tells us to do it. Now, let let me just make some application. Can Can I just earnestly plead with you? If you're a part of this church, would you please pray for the leaders of your church? We are so human. We're sinful. We're weak. We're prone to wander. We need the gospel as bad as anybody in our church needs the gospel. And God's doing something so special in our church. More people are meeting Jesus. More churches are getting planted. And I don't want our foolishness to sidetrack the direction of Jesus for our church. I don't want us to mess it up. I don't want us to blow it up. I don't want our hearts to grow cold. I don't want us to forget that Jesus is the head of this church and come up with our own agenda and plan. And all of those things are incredibly possible. And so would you pray for us? We pray for you. Pray for us. Lift us up. Ask that God would give us grace and repentance and humility and passion for the gospel and love for our city. Finally, The last thing that I think made Antioch so special in this text, I'll close with this. This was a church that had ridiculous gospel-driven generosity. This was just a church that was so incredibly generous with money and resources. Look what happens again in Acts 11, verse 27. Agabus prophesies that a famine's coming. And how do they respond to that? Verse 29, so the disciples determined, I love that, they determined. Everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the elders, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Here's what happens. This prophet says, hey, things are about to get really bad. Um, We know that the believers in Judea were probably at this point especially poor because of persecution, losing homes, losing jobs. And so they hear about this. And because they knew that the gospel is the message of God's free gift of grace in Jesus, their response is not, well, that's their problem. This is Antioch. It's going okay for us. We're a wealthy city. We've got enough stuff together. We need our resources for our mission. They hear about the needs of their poor brothers 
And each one determines according to his ability. What does that mean? What means everybody participated in this generous giving and some people had the ability to give tons more, some tons left, less, but it all mattered. And they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul for the resourcing and serving of God's mission in Judea. I'll just say a couple of things about this. I want us to be a church that grows like crazy in gospel generosity. I, I want us to aggressively pursue giving away a million dollars to church planting, right? We're on track this year to give away about half a million dollars to other churches. We want to get to the point where we're giving away a million bucks a year so that other churches can reach more people. We, we are on track this year to give away, um, I think, around $100,000 for the alleviation of the poor and suffering, pain and suffering in our city to help the poor. Like, that's good, but that's also kind of sucky. It's good. It's like a start. We gave to help Syrian refugees. We served the poor in our city, but it's nowhere near. Like, nobody's going to look at our church and say, $100,000, that's breathtaking gospel generosity. <laughs> And I want to I have non-Christians in our city say, oh man, like you really do believe that everything belongs to Jesus and you really do believe that he loves you in your poverty and you're trying to serve people in their poverty. I want us to be the kind of church, man, that we're equipping and sending. Let's give away everything that we can give away and follow Jesus radically with generosity as a church. And there's another kind of generosity as well. They, they're generous with their money, but they're also generous with their leaders. Like, just let this sink in. They're in a prayer meeting, Acts 13. They're in a prayer meeting, and they're probably praying for the mission of God globally, but they're probably especially praying for their city, for Antioch. There's like 300,000 people in the city of Antioch. There's a lot of needs. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of people meeting Jesus, which means there's all kinds of messes. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks during this prayer meeting, not audibly, but he speaks to the hearts of the leaders. And here's what he says. Hey, uh, send the two best leaders you have to start a missionary journey for other cities. Can you imagine? You're, you're there in Antioch. The needs are crazy. You're trying to serve people. And the Holy Spirit's like, hey, Paul and Barnabas, your two most mature, gifted guys, they need to go and leave this city so that more people in other cities can meet Jesus. And those leaders, you know what they do? They're like, all right, we'll send our best. Think about, the reality that's going to happen in a couple years when we send Sujith, one of the elders in our downtown congregation here, uh, when we send Sujith to India, we're sending one of the most talented, godly, brilliant, gifted leaders that we have in our whole church. We're going to feel that. That's going to be painful. That's going to be relationally painful because we're not going to see him as much. That's going to be organizationally really difficult for Frontline. I want our people in Frontline Edmond to start thinking about radical generosity and planting a church in Guthrie. I want the folks in South Oklahoma City to be thinking about radical generosity to plant down to the South, the surrounding areas, like thinking, thinking through Norman and people that aren't reached there and thinking through South of Norman and East of Norman and West of Norman and Midwest City. Why? Because gospel generosity is not that you give your scraps. Do you, do you understand Why? Because gospel generosity finds its origin in God. And God gave his best, his son. And that means that we want to respond and not give scraps to the mission of God. We want to give our best. So let me close by just saying this church had a great run. Not perfect, not without error, 
but they had a great run. Great leaders came out of this church and great churches got planted. And by the time less than 100 years had passed from Acts 11, Antioch had 50% of their population that had met Jesus. So where are we at as a church? Well, if this is a hobby, let's do a better hobby. But if this is participation in God's mission and we get to be a part of that, dude, let's elevate our faith for what he could do over the next 11 years. Let's elevate our hope. Let's dream bigger dreams together. Let's pray Jesus-sized prayers about God's mission. And let's go out into our city with boldness and courage and take gospel risks so that more people get added to the family of God.